Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Backstage Podcast. My guest this week is Greg Kelly, who, much like myself, spent a number of years working behind the scenes in Quebec politics. In 2018, he ran as a candidate in the general election and succeeded his own father in representing the riding of Jacques Cartier in the West End of Montreal. On this episode, we discuss what it's like to follow in his father's footsteps and being among the younger members of the National Assembly. He also gives his thoughts on the last campaign, as well as the different responsibilities that he has, namely the importance of the circle of young parliamentarians. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Jeff, oh no, you're not Jeff. No, edit that out, please. <laughs> Greg, it happens. I, I knew. I was thinking all, all along. I was like, you know, my eyes and my brain they see Greg, mm-hmm. but my mouth just wants to say uh, <laughs> Jeff. Know, right. I so, is all that, right. Is that is that something that happens often to you, or all the time? Do, yeah, people confuse you. Right? As long as I've been alive. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, being confused for Jeff Kelly isn't uh, isn't such a bad thing, right? No, like it, that's the thing that people does it bother you? I'm like, well, you know, to, to a certain point, of course, I want people to call me Greg, but it's not as if like my dad was somebody who was terrible. That yeah. you know, like people don't think of it like, oh, he's just like the that Jeff guy who was no, you know, the. My dad uh, has a pretty good reputation yeah. in, in the West Island and in the liberal circles and, and even in the political circles just of Quebec. Exactly. So, yeah, anyways, but it, it does happen on occasion, especially since I have a lot of colleagues that work with my dad. I, I was fortunate in my uh, previous job was working as a political advisor, right? So uh, I started all the way back in 2010. I finished a master's in public administration and the minister of the time of Indigenous Relations was Pierre Corbet. Mm-hmm. And they needed somebody in their office who... I actually in school, not just because my dad was a minister, but it's just it's a subject that I was very curious about. I studied a lot Canadian politics, American politics and relations with indigenous peoples was a subject that I just took a lot of courses on. So I had a knowledge of it, of course, through my dad, but also just an own personal interest Mm -hmm. in the relations between the Canadian Federation, mostly and indigenous people. So I got a job, Mr. Corbett, because I needed somebody to kind of work with some of the communities who are a bit more English and. Started out there. There was a cabinet shuffle. I went over to agriculture with Mr. Corbet, and then eventually I got a job with uh, Yvon Valier uh, in Canadian relations. We lost under Mr. Charest, so I lost my job. Yeah. And then I came back in 2014. Uh, Mr. Fournier, Jean-Marc Fournier, offered me a job to go back to Canadian relations mm-hmm. and help him work on some of his parliamentary leader duties and relations with the English-speaking community. Eventually led to a post working with the Premier of Quebec for relations with English-speaking Quebecers. That eventually led to the creation of a secretariat and the naming of a minister, Kathleen Wilde, who yeah. I worked with at the end. So a lot of the people I, I kind of knew through just being in Quebec City all the time, all those years. I was working in Quebec quite a bit. So I got to meet a lot of these, uh, a lot of these different uh, M&As uh, when I was there. So I, I, But I never worked with them. It's one thing to see them kind of as a staffer, but then get put into the caucus mm-hmm. and a different look because now I'm... Yeah, I am the son of, but I'm now I'm a colleague, you know. Yeah, and, exactly. And we, Is it strange though to be around all these people that you were just, you know, colleagues and staffers, and now suddenly you're the elected official? Uh, not in my eyes, no. Um, because I even viewed it when I was a staffer that we literally are a team. Like I get it. Like the M and A, the minister and the premier, they have their posting, but we all have to work together. And I've always tried to be a person to the challenged and uh, tested ideas. 
Like I was never afraid to kind of speak up and say, well, it's kind of what I think. Yeah. I think that was somewhat appreciated, but you know, there's of course some moments, some people intimidate you just because, but I really always tried never to be that intimidated, but get out there and just work with everyone. I tried to do good as a team player and I, I still see top, like politics is a team sport. It's not just the caucus. It's important. It goes all the way down to our volunteers, mm-hmm. uh, to the people working in the riding offices and to the people working in Quebec City. So for me, it was just like, I'm just kind of going to another role. And of course it's, it's different, but I always viewed it. They were all there to work for the same goal, mm-hmm. same common goal. Uh, it's funny because I don't I don't ever remember seeing you. And of course, if you're saying that you worked mostly in Quebec City, it makes sense because I, I was mostly in Montreal. But I we only got to know each other, you know, last year during mm-hmm. the campaign. And even then, it was just a couple of, yeah. you know, on a, on a couple of occasions. So uh, I thought, okay, well, there's Jeff Kelly's kid and he's coming in and that's fantastic. I had no clue that there was all this uh, yeah. background. Yeah, and... Uh it surprises like again when we go to those you know conferences the the congrès yeah. and all that there's a lot of us there and i guess you i like i remember meeting you uh, i remember meeting you in the past at some of those events but again it was like in passing like you and i had never actually sat down to have yeah. like a longer conversation and part of that is literally just because you go to these events and you will, will see people i haven't seen that person in a long time you end yeah. up chit-chatting for a long time you're with your riding association i was always with jacques cartier so the things they, they pass by, but uh, yeah, it's um, it, there is a there is a story behind it. Like, I, of course, there's my dad, and people always say you have big shoes to fill, and I say that's true. But I also have my own shoes mm-hmm. to kind of make. And mm-hmm. yes, I'm 50 percent Jeff Kelly, but I'm also 50 percent Judy Harper, my mom. So like, yeah. <laughs> I also bring in that side too. Yeah. Uh, she, you know, she she I would say she's a little bit more feisty than my dad, and a yeah. little bit more. Uh, you know, upfront and challenging things. So it, it really is a mix. But yeah, I mean, I just didn't, I never either viewed it as just because I'm Jeff Kelly's son, I was going to get the job, right? Like I never had that approach. I knew that I had to go out there and work there. And last year to become the candidate, I got on the ground, I sold memberships. Yeah. I pushed hard for it because I wanted it. I wanted the job and I wanted to represent my community. Uh, Jock Cartier and the West Island, I grew up there. And I, I, I truly believe that politics is a way to serve your community and it is a public service my grandparents were very involved in the community my granny was involved in the formation of alliance quebec the old defunct anglo group Mm -hmm. she worked really hard with the pq government to make sure that there were rights for english-speaking quebecers to access to health and social services she fought for that yeah Uh, my granddad was an ultimate liberal volunteer and if there was a campaign going on federal provincial municipal school board he was there he was there mm-hmm. he was going to help the candidate he you know helped out clifford lincoln like he was just one of those people he spent so many years volunteering in politics and on my mom's side my, my granddaddy he lived out in vancouver he was an air accountant and a pilot and he was very involved like with the vietnamese boat people so mm-hmm. he helped a lot bring refugees to this country he was very involved in his church very involved in his community uh served canada in world war ii so there is kind of like in our family our genes uh there's a long history of the kellys and the the, the, the other side the scots that served in world war served in community so honestly when people say it runs in the blood it does and it's not just me my four sisters all work at public institutions oh wow so uh yeah it's just a little bit of a trait that we have and but we do really care about where we come from like we we want to help our neighbors and that's uh something i keep caring forward in politics and everything i do I, i know where i come from i know my roots and i just want to always try and best represent those people how's your uh how's your dad now 
is Great. he is he is he involved awesome. at all? It, it's we were talking about this before going yeah. on air how how difficult that transition is, and obviously he was elected, I wasn't, but uh, even as a staffer, just going to like a more you know quote unquote normal yeah. lifestyle, yeah. it's just weird. I mean, is, is your father still you know watching the National Assembly channel, following? <laughs> no, he was happy to get rid of um, the part of like sitting in the National Assembly, going to Quebec City. He had just had enough of that. Like he loved. You know, part of the being the minister and working with indigenous communities, he loved that part of the job. Uh, he loved being part of the larger discussions, but he, in all honesty, was just tired of making the trek to Quebec City, putting yeah. the, you know, getting the suitcase out, putting clothing in it, going up to Quebec and then coming back. Uh, my sister has four kids, so he kind of wanted to be closer to home, and he's really enjoying that part. Yeah. But he's remained engaged. He's working right now at the school board issue for the English community as a volunteer. He's working at McGill part-time as a with their new public administration program. So my mom said to him, you can retire from politics, but you can't retire. <laughs> you're, yeah, you're not yeah. sitting around at home doing absolutely yeah, nothing. Yeah. So he's transitioned well, um, but I think he was kind of ready to leave the National Assembly life behind him. Yeah. And he didn't have there because there are some people that continue to watch, um, you know, question period, follow mm-hmm. it a little bit. And uh, not my dad, though, not yeah. my dad. It's a good thing, though, I guess, right? You, 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 you did what you have to do, and then you just you know, put everything behind you. You created that legacy, and he should be proud. I mean, uh, you know, his son is taking over, and uh, the same writing, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure that he's proud of you. Uh, I, I can understand. Uh, he was there for a long time, though. When, when was he elected for the first time? The first time he was elected was in 1994. 94. Yeah. So he would have been brought in as after the Equality Party, if yeah. you remember in your Quebec history when they swept the West Island yeah, ridings yeah. and took West Mount, uh, he was the follow-up after that. He got elected. And um, so he would have been there for the last referendum in 1995. He would have lived through all that transition from a very heated campaign to how does Quebec fit itself into Canada after a referendum where the yes side lost. Mm-hmm. And he so he saw a lot. He really did. And... Um, he worked before that for Claude Ryan and as a political advisor himself. Mm-hmm. So he, in total, was about 30 years Quebec Montreal. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. How do you feel? Uh, newly elected. Obviously, I mean, like you said, I mean, it's, it's, you're, not, you're not a total stranger uh, to politics or to the workings of, uh, of government and parliament. Um, but, uh, yeah, how, how does it feel? Um Privileged is one word that always comes to mind. Uh, When you sit in that desk in the National Assembly, it's extremely humbling. You realize not a lot of people have the opportunity to do that. And you have to to really respect it. And it's kind of sometimes why people get riled up in the National Assembly when an M&A might not behave properly. Because I think there really is something to the institution that it deserves respect. Mm -hmm. Um, It is the place of the people. It's not the place of just the people sitting there, right? Uh, So that, that was a big step. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges is, and you watch it and you watch people and sometimes bosses go into parliamentary committees and study bills. That for me, I would say has been the biggest challenge is sitting in on those, uh, rem- remaining attentive, but also being sharp because the days are long, you know, and, and I'm being in the shoes of m now who have to sit there and like work on that stuff that can be quite technical and you might not have any expertise in it. Yeah. Uh, you still have to contribute to the discussion. It, that's something that I think there it, there is a learning curve, but you also have to find like your rhythm. Like, how are you going to be a good parliamentarian? How are you going to ask your questions? 
some people can go into very specific details or like grab a word and then run with it. Mm -hmm. So finding kind of like your, your rhythm and also just, like I said, staying alert because the days do get long. I'm also working in my second language. So that is sometimes where I've, I've realized, wow, I appreciate now when I would watch ministers when I was working as a staffer, you'd watch ministers going to these parliamentary committees, doing hundreds of hours, studying yeah. a bill. And it's ours, you know, it's it, it, it that is where I think also to the population, well, what do you do? And you say, well, I sit in these committees and they might not fully, uh, you know, grasp what are, like what are we doing there? Because it's just one of those things that nobody it doesn't get played on the news. Yeah, of course. And you're never shown that. But we sit there some days, you know, from 10 o'clock in the morning till nine o'clock at night with a, f- a few breaks, but studying, you know, like one issue. And you'll do that for weeks at a time. And uh, it's it's taxing, but it's also rewarding because mm-hmm. you end up then becoming an expert on a subject you yeah. might have known little about or yeah. you had just seen kind of the larger principles about. So that is like one of the things I would say that I, out of everything that has changed, that I ex- not that I expected the least, but I definitely have a greater appreciation is for the hard work that goes into parliamentary committees from everyone sitting around that table. This is what I this is what I always find amazing, and you know, I mean, like you said, it doesn't play on the news. You, you know, usually people get the one hour during question period where, you know, you're practically throwing things at each other, but you know, people don't people don't realize that the committee work uh, that is being done. Obviously, there's members of par- uh, there's members from all parties. In general, it's pretty uh, it's pretty humane, right? I mean, things get done almost on a unanimous. Uh, level there's a there's a great deal of cooperation that happens in these uh, in these committees which is fantastic you know the parliamentary system that we have uh, and people don't realize that because you know very few people actually follow the committee work right yeah good example to that um, we just recently in Quebec City they passed the taxi Uber bill yeah. so the modernization of the transport industry or whatever the bill's official title was Bill 17 and off the get go the government had not included adapted transportation Mm -hmm. for people with a handicap was completely omitted from the bill. And the minister or obviously realized he had made a mistake, but was receptive to not just criticism, but like we brought amendments forward to try to make the bill better. We brought amendments forward on uh, mobility and uh, durable mobility. And, and you know, there were things that he brought into his legislation that he accepted. And at the same time, we raised questions on a few issues They caught the government off guard because, and it's not to blame the minister, you know, he looks at some of these articles and he might, you know, the bill was 280 articles. Yeah. And he goes through it, but he might not have had the time on each and every one to To grasp the the, kind of the larger perspective of how this could impact uh, the industry. So like for one, for example, was to limit the taxis industry's right to sue for a greater compensation. I don't know if they're going to win or not. That's going to be for a judge to decide. Yeah. But at least people should have the right to test that. And at one point, there was a clause that was in the bill that would have limited, them, would have limited the right of taxi drivers to do that. And when we asked the minister, he he was kind of, he didn't, he didn't grasp it. And he rectified it uh, later. But that's just a small example of us being an effective and efficient mm-hmm. opposition. And we're not just blocking the way of the bill. We're studying it. And we're yeah. saying, hey, did you think about this? And him making the adjustments. So that is one thing, like you said, it doesn't get shown on the news, but bills in the end will be modified. Maybe not completely, but there'll be changes made. And a lot of times it's due because the opposition asks the right and good questions and the government's not always right. No bill arrives in the national assembly. Perfect. Ready to be adopted immediately. Yeah. Um, let's go back to the election, uh, 2018. Obviously you've, uh, you've campaigned in the past. How did it feel for you to be the candidate? 
Um, so to be the candidate, uh, again, you're extremely uh, humbled to have that opportunity to go out there, represent a political party, yeah. go fight for what you believe in. What I think was really the most rewarding was that you have your platform, you're going out to spin, but then going out on the ground and talking to people and it comes back with things you're like, wow, I never thought about that in my neck of the woods. Uh, and also just kind of also gauging what are the real priorities of people. Mm-hmm. And that's where I realized, you know, uh, the tough part of being kind of a staffer, uh, especially if you're in Quebec City, you do get a little bit disconnected because you're not going out door to door. You're not going out to the mall to talk to people. You're not going out to train stations yeah. to meet with people. So it really gave me, a, I, I realized that, you know, being a grassroots politician, you don't just get elected and then go away. You have to do your best to try to remain ex- as accessible as possible to people. So they can come up to you and tell you how they're feeling. And then you'll be a more effective candidate. You'll be a more effective uh, politician if you get there. So it was a huge lesson I learned. And it's something that I always remember my dad was saying, but not being the candidate. And, and you know, I would be a volunteer or whatever. I, I never, I think, fully appreciated until I was the ones there saying, okay, these people have huge, huge expectations of me. Yeah. And they're expecting me to go out there and, and work on certain things. So you owe it to them to try to do that to your best of the abilities. And uh, a lot of the times you do have to just be frank with people and say, I don't have the response yeah. to you, but you know, take my number and I'll, I'll try to get back to you. Yeah. So that was, that was a thing that I really took away from the campaign. You know, more, more in general though. I mean, it's amazing to see how people's uh, ideologies just shift, right? Cause mm-hmm. I, I've been there since 2007. I was, I didn't do the campaign in 2007, but you know, right after the 2007, cause it was a minority government. So we had an, an election in 2008. Yeah. Right. Um, and I don't know about your writing, but, specifically the one that that I was in, things used to just change from one election to the next. I mean, the dynamics, and of course, you know, we're smack in the middle of Montreal, so obviously there's all these demographic elements that we had to take into consideration, so obviously that's pretty much different from, uh, from, from your writing, but things just changed enormously, and I, I realized that also in 2018, where you're going into the campaign with an exceptional track record, yep. you know, record, record numbers in employment, um, uh, you know, balancing budgets with surpluses, and you're thinking, what can happen? You know, everything's going to be fine. I mean, look, mm-hmm. look what we're going into the campaign with, and you realize that people don't care. Mm-hmm. People don't care about platforms. People like people want to know what's going on on the ground, and that's uh, uh, and there's a lot of grassroots movements now gaining a lot of momentum. Yep, we saw that obviously with Quebec Solidaire. Uh, they went from two uh, MNAs to how many are they now? Ten. Uh, yep. Yep. Just yeah. crazy. Yeah, and increased uh, in vote popularity, and uh, there's there's no doubt though when you're we governed for a long time, it's tough. Like in the sense that everything that goes wrong definitely gets pinned on you. Yeah. And like you said, people don't necessarily notice the things that went right. Yeah. Uh, and you can cry out loud that we did so many good things, but people tend to remember kind of the latest thing and the worst experience. So um, how how do you transform then from, and also getting stuck in the position that you become so defensive because you, it's your record and it's yeah. you, you were the minister and you were well, that. And then we get, we get on our heels instead of kind of being out there. Quebec Solidaire has the freedom to be able to say whatever they want mm-hmm. because, and at some point they might govern and might have to answer to people. Maybe that'll happen one day. But there is kind of getting in that opposition role. You can be very much more associated with movements. You can be 
very much more at liberty to say, yeah, I'm going to dip into people's RRSPs to uh, yeah. fight climate change. Yeah. You know, well, you can say anything like that and people are, they won't remember that. But then when the day comes, if you're governing and you actually do it, that will take Well, yeah, there's the rock, a certain accountability know? that you have to, uh, to hold yourself to. But that's what, that's what I always found frustrating. Mm-hmm. It's like you're a party, you know that you're probably never going to govern, or maybe you are, who knows, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. But, you know, at that point in time, nobody knew, no, nobody expects the, mm-hmm. a party like Quebec Solidaire to govern. So you come you come out with all these crazy ideas, and they're populist ideas, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're very populist, and they attract a lot of popularity. Yeah, and again, uh, you, hit a, you, you hit the nail on the head there, because people always think of populism as an exclusive to the right wing. It's not true. You can be a populist no, on the left. You can Absolutely. be a populist in the center. Um, you can make the argument. Bernie Sanders is a populist. Yeah. Of course. Barack Obama was a populist uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, so you, you, there will have to be a reflection within the party too that, you know, there used to be this big liberal machine that existed and perhaps one, one point in our time it did. It's not there now. So how do you reconnect a little bit with the grassroots issues of people, but not how do you build those associations how do you get people really involved in some of the things uh that we believe in mm-hmm. uh, how do you rally people around individual freedoms and rights which right now in the world seem to be something that people are willing to scale back on mm-hmm. i mean there's a lot of these things that are the party we do have to think about reconnecting and it's not just always well here's the platform we'll go with it and people vote because of our record platform no but really getting people more involved and feeling that they can participate in the party participate uh more in democracy and it's it's a tough sell but it, it is a huge part of the the next phase of the part the Liberal Party of Quebec, in my do, opinion. Do you feel that there was a connection lost with the base with the? Um, you know, I think that uh, there there was a certain disconnect with some of our. I think people felt like they would go to our conventions, and they would present ideas, get up to the mic and speak, and say, "Okay, this is our platform. We're going to work on it, and this will be the next thing we do." In the other, and then it never happens. Yeah. Some people are saying, well, why am I going to these things every weekend? Like, is anyone actually listening to me? And maybe that also has to be reflected how the party holds these conventions, you know? Is yeah. it is it a place where we're going to say that we're always working uh, specifically on building a platform together? Or is it more a place that we get together and discuss ideas and do a little bit of networking with one another and, and try to build connections as, as liberals? I mean, I, I don't have all the answers, but... Perhaps it is just one of those things. What are what's happening in the United States? How are they holding their conventions? Like what we do have to look around the world and say, hey, what has worked in other places, and can we adopt that here? But I, I think it's sometimes if I was a, a volunteer, maybe I would have felt that it was harder to see. You know, some of the ministers. Do I really get a time to talk to them? It, I think it was a little bit difficult to yeah. to do to do that for the party when they were in government for so long. There wasn't really a moment where we sat and looked at the party and we thought it top to bottom, which is an exercise which I'm happy to say is being done right now. But I always felt, especially, um, you know, in the beginning when I started, there were propositions coming from all sorts of places. Yeah. Like the associations were involved. uh, And, you know, towards the end, at least until last year, um, that kind of, uh, I felt that was missing. Yeah, you know there was one or two you know uh, committees that were that were proposing things. Of course, the youth wing is, has always been very, um, very present, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, but I felt that too. I mm-hmm. felt that you go there and you're like, okay, what exactly is being proposed here? Yeah. Um, I I don't know what's gonna happen. Honestly, uh, I, I'm afraid, that, and I'll be honest with you. Um, 
and this is actually something that Mr. Couillard uh, told us uh, at the end of the campaign. I'm afraid that we fall in a pattern where we follow, um, you know, the populist trends mm -hmm. just so we can succeed in support yep. rather than sticking to what identifies us and, you know, uh, what makes our party. Yeah. That's what scares me the most. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to, uh, you know, open this discussion, I guess, I don't know if, depending on wh whether you want to talk about it or not, but, you know, the, the, the youth wing had proposed, uh, you know, a constitution for Quebec, and they made some really, uh, in my opinion, uh, propositions that, you know, you, you, you wouldn't have expected, right? Yeah. And I was thinking, is that something that is needed right now, or are we doing this because it's the popular thing, and that's how we're going to get people back? You know, this whole question on multiculturalism versus interculturalism. Mm -hmm. You know, because Legault won on the basis of, you know, the nationalist, and we have to chase that in order to get back our vote. It bothers me a little bit. Yeah, um, I think that the party. There's nothing wrong with trying to not just dust off, but reinforce what being a liberal and a nationalist means. Because I always felt that you could be a Quebec nationalist. It doesn't mean you have to be closed off to other cultures, uh, to other languages. Uh, you build a nationalism that is inclusive and also one that conquers the world. You know, like being proud that Quebec, yes, uh, we're a Francophone majority here with, you know, different other uh, linguistic groups and cultures, and but we're all here to build Quebec together and we're all equal. And we're also able to go out there. We don't have to be afraid of the world. We can go out there. We have companies that are dynamic, that can conquer markets. I always thought that was a brand of a nationalism that I could accept, uh, you know, and not one that says that there's a majority against everyone else, which mm -hmm. is the nationalism that is pushed right now. Union national. I mean, that is what it is. So if you want to talk about building a constitution, I'll be there for the discussion. But don't expect expect me to, to accept something that is cacolite, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to build a constitution that reinforces rights of all Quebecers in all all aspects, you'll have my you know you'll have my my voice will be part of that. I will be there for the discussion. I'll be there to stand up for an inclusive Quebec, one that is thinking of the future of all of us together moving forward. Um, do I think that we need a constitution tomorrow? No, uh, honestly, I, I think we have a constitution mm -hmm. with our the Quebec Charter of Rights and Freedoms yeah. that exists. There is a Charter of Language, too. I mean, if you look at that, that would be considered in many ways constitutions. Do we need to have something that is a little bit more definitive about um, what divisions of power Quebec has? Like, I don't know. So I, I would have to have a, a more thorough discussion with people on why we need a constitution. Why does it have to be done right away? I don't close the door to it. But I think if we want to reconnect with all Quebecers, because I don't like it just has to be about Francophones. You can't have the obsession just, just exclusively with that because mm -hmm. Anglophones and Allophones didn't go out and vote for the Liberal Party last time either. Mm -hmm. we, have a, we have a challenge to reconnect with Quebecers in all the corners of this province. I still think that in the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, we want a good healthcare system. We want good social services. We want a strong economy. We want a good education system. We want to fight climate change. And I know that those are all things that people are competing for, but that has always been our bread and butter and what has united people from different backgrounds, different ideologies to the Liberal Party. And one that always presented big ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, I, you know, I still admire the Plan Nord mm -hmm. because it was a dream. It of sold a, a plan to Quebecers of a very ambitious project. That's what, in my opinion, draws people in together. So I'm not saying that's what has to be the next time around, but if you're 
trying to bring in a lot of people back into the fold. Uh, I don't think it has to pass exclusively by passing constitutions. I think people are more concerned with the bread and butter issues. I agree with you 100%. And the fear that I have is that because we seem to be drifting more uh, on the lines of ideology, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm just afraid that we're going to lose people. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think the disconnect is going to become even bigger. Yeah. And uh, again, I, I get that point. Like when you see the polls with the Francophone numbers, I, I totally understand. And I also just look at the polls, period. And I say, yeah, we have a lot of work to do. Um, but again, it was always a party and it always is. The Liberal Party remains one of big tent politics. You have to stay that way. Mm-hmm. And you have to be able to bring in people who have a more left wing ideology, people who have a more right wing ideology, people who are in the center. Uh, people who are you know, attracted to specific causes. How can we get some of the bigger thinkers in this province coming back to our conventions, coming to participate in our discussions? I, I, for me, that's kind of what I'm hoping for, for the renewal of the party and the way forward. And I think we can get there. I, I still see that there are a lot of very interesting and bright minds that are involved with the party and they want to do more. So that's where uh, that's how I'm feeling right now. But I hear what you're saying. I really do. And we can't just assume because we're liberals and if we try to act a little bit more nationalist, we'll be right back in there because I, I think that's not the pathway to success. Mm-hmm. The the other thing that shocked me a little bit, and of course, you know, the, I mean, at some point, you know, there's there's democracy in a party, right? There's, the, there's a decision-making process. I'm not so sure it was the right decision to launch a leadership race that soon after the elections. Yeah. I think it was a big mistake, uh, and you know it happened. I mean, the people, you know, they 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 decided. I just don't know if we were ready for it, mm-hmm. right? I mean, even even on a strategic level, you know, you're launching into a leadership campaign at the exact same time when the government is in its honeymoon period, right? Yep. Uh, aside from the fact that you're already low in the polls, mm-hmm. how are you going to get that excitement back into the party and into this whole process, right? And it sucks because until now, there's only one person that has officially uh, declared that she's a candidate. I think she's great. You know, I have nothing against Dominique. I think I think she's great. But I just would have loved to have like maybe three or four different people just to, to exchange these ideas, bring people closer to the party. Uh, and it's just not happening. Yeah. And I had two thoughts on that. I was in your line of thinking, and you know, I went to my association after. I said, oh, I think we should probably try to buy ourselves as much time as we possibly can uh let the next leader take over and not you know let somebody do a lot of the legwork to you know re kick start the party reorganize it um but you know my association a lot of people said, so no we we think it's good to have a leader sooner rather than later in the end of the day a lot of the militants thought the same way and totally accept that and so you got to move on from that but I, I hear what you're saying on that point too that perhaps a little bit more time would have been beneficial that was my line of thinking but there, I do also see that at some point you people are also waiting on a leader. You know, I mean, Pierre Arcon is doing a great job, mm-hmm. but they know he ha- he has the interim tag. Yeah. So people, I think, also want the next leader to really be hands-on in reforming this party and getting to work right away on rebuilding things. So yeah. I, I see the advantage of... But we have four years, yeah. man. Like, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I, the, the way I see it is let the interim leader do the two years... Uh, you know, create the cohesiveness in the party, yep. perform well in opposition, pressure the government, gain some momentum, and then bring in your leader towards the end when we're approaching the elections. Because you don't you don't want the leader to come in soon now and have to to trip or, you know, have to 
to overcome all these stumbling blocks yeah. until you reach the election. You have no idea what might happen until 2022, right? Yeah. So it's always better, I think, bring in the leader when the party is somewhat on the rise mm-hmm. and then everyone gets behind the leader and you know we continue on that momentum. I think that you bring the leader in sooner, there may be a stumbling block and we may be left in opposition for another four years. Yeah. Uh, no, and for sure, I mean, one way and the other, uh, is there potentially another scenario where it comes later and it would have worked out well? Perhaps. Uh, but like you said, now that next person coming in is going to have a good period of about three and a half years, three years, two and a half years to set their mark and going to have to obviously manage some rocky waters. There's, there's no doubt about it. But the plan also has to be that the person comes in and then really implements something that is a concrete strategy to get to 2022. We can't just assume because we're liberals and this is the old adage about liberals who end up being too arrogant is that Oh, we'll just go next time and win because we're liberals, you know? I mean, it's good on one hand that people think we can always win. That helps keep your brand alive. But you also can't have this plan that you just think it's going to happen. So if somebody wants to come in and is serious about the job, is well-organized, and is going to lay out a game plan, reorganize the party, re-engage our militants, prepare us for 2022 because it's going to have to happen almost right away that the machine starts getting to work. Yeah, It is, of course, a big task. Um, but... I, I can see also on the uh, the flip side the advantage of leaving the leader to really put their mark on everything. Mm-hmm. And it's something the party never really had. Mr. Cuillard won, and then within... It was uh, instant. It, it was like instant he had to go to the Well, camp, because we were in a minority camp. government yeah, too, right? That so that, the, that was the circumstances of the moment, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, now the fact that we have four years, I mean, it just seems that it's still so far away. Yeah. Uh, and I get what you're saying. You know, with you know certain people at the party taking... Uh, uh, parts of the electorate for granted. We're like, ah, it's okay. We're liberals. We're, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to mm-hmm. get together. And we're going to come out to vote. I noticed that, you know, the younger generations now that are coming into that voting age, regardless of what their parents are voting, mm-hmm. they're not there. Yeah, you have to go get them. It's like this renewal that we have yep. to uh, engage in. I remember in 2018, the campaign for some reason they had to come out with an internal poll where they told us the 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 youngsters, like the 18 to 35 uh, demographic, is liberal. I was looking at them and I was like, where? Yeah. I'm like, come and walk in my riding. I mean, yeah. I'm not sure those youngsters yeah. are, are liberal, you know? I mean, or voting. Or voting, yeah. Well, now they seem to be a little bit more engaged. You know, the mm-hmm. social media, I mean, they're, they're present. They're much more aware of the different uh, causes. Like, for example, the environment. We had a, a march in Montreal a couple of weeks ago. It was just enormous, right? Yeah. So, and there's a lot of young people engaged. Um, I think the engagement isn't so much the problem, I think it's reaching them on an ideological level to tell them that, listen, this is what we're proposing. Where do you stand on these issues, right? Mm -hmm. And not to necessarily take that for granted. Uh, There's a federal election. I mean, I'm not sure when we're going to post this episode, but uh, just for the people listening or watching, we're, you know, a couple days before the federal election. And I was talking with um, an organizer because, you know, we're doing the car ride conversation, so I'm I'm interviewing a bunch of candidates. And there was this uh, organizer that I was talking to and, uh, you know, I'm not, we're not going to say the writing, but he, he was, you know, they were campaigning specifically with, uh, with you know, an ethnic group. Mm-hmm. And I was telling him, like, are you sure that's the best strategy? Yeah, don't worry. They usually vote for us or we're just making sure that they come out. And I'm like, okay, yeah, you have to make sure that they come out. But I'm not so sure that the younger generations, because their parents were voting whatever party, yep. that they're necessarily yours, mm-hmm. right? And it's just this... Uh, I don't know what it is. It's a bug that we have, especially when it comes down to strategy and when we're when we're you know organizing a campaign, 
where by default you just you know grab chunks of your elector okay these are with us just to mm-hmm. figure out where your numbers are right yeah uh, and I think that's going to be a big challenge yeah and Quebec is more recently really been a, a swing province since Jack Layton yeah I agree you know like we've seen waves in Quebec that we haven't really seen in other provinces like just all of a sudden out of nowhere a bunch of people marched to the polls and voted in a way that all the political Lecker. analysts said no you know it's going to go even for Justin Trudeau I mean it was un- I I was surprised by how many seats he won last time and I said wow man Quebec in some of these areas well, he was where, coming in third yeah, right he was coming in Until third about and, a week or so and a week before <laughs> and, and he basically won on the coattails of uh of Quebec honestly and uh, of course Ontario yeah. helped a little bit but he it was it was surprising, and even with the CAC. I mean, the CAC went into the last campaign rising and into second, but in very close competition with the PQ. Mm-hmm. PQ, basically all their voters went to the CAC, and some of you know, our liberal voters went there. But that was also, even the last two weeks, there was for sure a movement of a lot of people who were undecided voters or voters yeah. who were just... Yeah, you know, I usually vote liberal this time, voting CAC. You know, and like that loyalty was gone. The loyalty was gone. And I think Quebec voters right now... Fickle is a good word to use. That, but like you said, you can't just count on people because they voted for you last time to go vote just because. Oh, I'm just going to go vote red again. I'm going to go vote blue again. Yeah. And how do you? But how do you break down that barrier? That is, that is, I think, a huge challenge. We see that in politics across North America right now. How do we talk to kind of the the middle class, younger voter, young families right now? And what yeah, are the ways the that they're consuming the media? Forty-five. Yeah. They, they don't consume the media. They don't consume politics like the previous generations. And a lot of the practices to get people to vote are based more on practices from older systems. So it's, um, it's, it's a really good question. I've yet, to, I've yet to crack that one. Besides the fact, I still think at least retail politics of going out into your community to see as many people as mm-hmm. you can remains, at least so you can meet them, you know, mm-hmm. and they'll know your face. I think people still appreciate that. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit. Uh, you were on the radio uh, yesterday, I think. Uh, with uh, Catherine Fournier, yeah, uh, former member of the Parti Québécois, now turned independent. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. I find that very interesting. What are you guys working on? Um, so it, we have in Quebec City, there is actually a circle of young parliamentarians. It was created in the last legislature by the group of three MNAs uh, who were under 35. Um, so they said, look, we don't have a lot of people right now, but in the future, because there is a circle of young, there's, sorry, there's a circle of female parliamentarians. There's a circle that works on, uh, questions just like it at the national assembly. So somebody said, well, it'd be good to have a youth one. And maybe one day we'll become a little bit more interesting in the sense that there's more people. So this time around there's 14 people under 35. So, uh, we can get together, talk about issues, but it's also to show a little bit that young people can be involved in politics. We can be elected. Like it's not just always negative. And George, I've been I've been pretty disappointed by the federal elections. Oh, not yeah, by the too. not by the local people necessarily. Like the, you know, my my MP, he's a really nice guy. He doesn't play that style of politics. But if I look up at the national campaign, it's dirty. It's just dirty. But it's also, and I made this point yesterday on CJD. If I'm 18 years old, and I'm going to vote for the first time, and I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm gonna pay attention. I'm like, wow, I'm never voting again. <laughs> you know, but it, it, it's, it's it's frustrating. Yeah, no, no, but it's funny that you mentioned it because it, it's a topic that has come up on many episodes of you know the car ride the show. There's very little content, and it, it, oh, yeah. but it set the pace, right? Yeah. As soon as the election started, Andrew Shear came out even before Justin Trudeau came out to announce the elections. He 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 stole the thunder basically, like, and it was he set the pace, he set the yeah. tone, and he came out swinging and i was like oh my god is this going to be the campaign yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, (laughs) no, and and that's why yesterday I went on with Catherine Fournier, who, who, you know, we're from two different walks of life. There's no doubt about it. Um, And I, you know, she read a book. Sorry, she wrote a book and I read it. And there's some ideas there. And I read, I'm like, you know, I now understand a little bit where she comes from. There's some things in there that there's commonalities between us. Um, And I just wanted to go on air and, and show that, you know, her and I can sit down in a room, talk, have a respectful conversation. We can debate ideas. But also that we kind of, she truly kind of believes that politics have to change and positivity has to be, you have to always be presenting ideas and getting people in around ideas, bring people into politics for good reasons. Yeah. Not just, and I know that in a debate, I, I, I don't blame them. You have a short two minute span to respond to questions that are extremely technical. You know, how are you going to fight climate change? You have a minute 30. Maybe what do you want in a minute 30? I mean, explain how <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do that. Yeah, I think yeah. it's extremely unfair. But you do know in that one, in one minute 30, I can get that clip that will become a gif, that will become a meme, that will become yeah. something quotable in the paper. And if I have a minute 30, maybe it's easier just to go negative because that will be something that people will retain. And that's not just politicians' fault. There's a lot of the media side, too, that they kind of want this conflict mm-hmm. and to sell controversy. Yeah. I mean, for how many weeks do we talk about friggin' blackface for two weeks straight? I'm like, at a certain point, what more can we talk yeah, about this? Yeah, yeah. And I think I was, if I feel that way, that means I'm oh, sure definitely. a lot of people are saying, okay, we get it. We don't agree with what he did, but he said sorry. And okay, let's a few more cases, yeah. let's move on. So yeah. I think that, uh, <sighs> that, that that's kind of why we're just going out there to remind people there can be positive elements in politics. And you, you know, that doesn't mean that you can't be an, a critic and you keep the government accountable, because if not, we'll be North Korea. You do have to do that part where you criticize the government, yeah. but the personal bashing and the personal attacks, I felt it's been a very American style campaign and it, it frustrates me and it worries me too. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about the caucus there. I mean, you, you know, you're collaborating with uh, Catherine Fournier. Obviously, you're, you're sitting in this committee together. Uh, you want to bring forth change, you have different ideas. How does that resonate in caucus? Uh, so the caucus, it, what, one thing that's good, at least for us as a young group, uh, it's one way for us to sit down. People come from all parts of Quebec. Um, we have members of Quebec Solidaire, the CAC, Parti Québécois. So what, just basics, we get to know one another. Um, and then sometimes that can help in committee when you're like, hey, let's go maybe together bring this idea to talk to the minister about. You know, when you don't go alone, that can kind of help you out. But also just how is the National Assembly... Are we doing enough getting out into our schools? Are we doing enough getting out um, into CGEPs? In like in a nonpartisan way to say like, here's what government's about. Here's what politics is all about. You don't always have to see it as a constant conflict. It's a place where ideas can be shared. So I think in a lot of times we're just trying to talk about how um, we can make uh, the, the National Assembly look a little bit younger because yeah. it is obviously a lot older people that are there. It's... Politics is a ch- tough job for somebody who has a young family. It's not ideal working hours. You're far away from your family, especially if you come from certain regions of Quebec. So a lot of times it's trying to discuss, too, is there ways that we could maybe modify the schedule? Can we bring voting in the National Assembly? Can it be done electronically? I mean, there's some of those things that can we bring National Assembly into a more modern mm-hmm. age? How can we try to find ways to make things less partisan? Uh, so we, we have kind of like group discussions about that and any decisions that we do make will just be proposed to the National Assembly. It's then up to the president to decide if he wants to take on uh, what we're proposing. But sometimes it's just modern, you know, if somebody brings a child to the National Assembly, could they have their baby with them sitting in the National Assembly if the baby's being respectful and quiet? Like, yeah. no, those are things that had the National Assembly's never spoken on. So we want to kind of be a little bit more preventive just to say, is there a quiet room next door that could perhaps be made accessible? Somebody's kid can't go to daycare and they want to be at a vote. I mean, 
Yeah, so just yeah. just small things like that that uh, are again trying to make the National Assembly a little bit of a more conducive place for younger people to get involved and stay in politics. Because you do see a lot of younger people, they'll leave. And not because they don't want to run or they can't win again. They just say it's tough. It's too tough for my family life. It's not yeah. the right point. And that's why in the end we have a lot of people in the National Assembly are towards the end of their careers and they enter in as almost the last thing they're going to do. So if we want to have a National Assembly that's a little bit more reflective of our society and of younger people, they're, the National Assembly might have to rethink just rethink some of its practices. It's not to say we have to work less, but maybe how are we working and yeah. can be more efficient. Dude, I know you have to get on a call. Yeah, I got to get on a call. Um, this is a lot of fun, though. I appreciate I, it. Yeah. We, should, we should do it again. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, <laughs> never. Uh, I, I'm, I'm happy to come back. Maybe we can do a, a debrief uh, of the session. Just go over for your listeners some of the things we talked about in the National Assembly, because that goes by so yeah, fast, man, too. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I appreciate right. it, buddy. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot.